Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Though to be fair, it seems to be mostly TV at the moment because that's what everybody is spending their life doing. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of 19th century France and Europe, and I have a passion for all things 19th century, which is quite appropriate this week. Uh, Zoe and I have been discussing and consuming culture together ever since we were at university. Years that now feel so far away, it was positively the Regency. Yes, I think I was being driven around in a barouche box. (laughs) (laughs) This week we're discussing Bridgerton. Netflix's festive blockbuster, the fifth most watched Netflix original series ever, downloaded by 65 million households in the week after it appeared. Created by Shonda Rhimes, the writer of Grey's Anatomy, that multi-season epic binge-a-thon about doctors in an ER, but not ER, the show is based on Julia Quinn's best-selling novel and is a period romp set in Regency England, hence my barouche box. <laughs> It's not just any period romp. There's a black Queen Charlotte, black courtiers, a black Duke and Indian debutantes. Just to underline the amazing success of Bridgerton, Shonda Rhimes was paid $100 million to come and work for Netflix. And, you know, Bridgerton was also number one in 76 countries. Entertainment Weekly described it as a horny historical romance for the ages. And Vanity Fair, in what I think was a more interesting review, uh, said that Bridgerton is a satisfying inversion of tropes a bonfire of art period drama vanities. If we start with the bonfire of the period drama, I guess you've already mentioned, Zoe, what it's doing in terms of race is amongst the most radical kind of rethinkings of what period drama might be. I have to say, I found the the kind of inclusion of race in it quite jarring and actually sort of superficial. At the beginning of this series, I thought that it was a choice of colorblind casting something that I actually think usually works quite well. Um, I thought the recent David Copperfield, for instance, that had colorblind casting was totally brilliant. Um, So at the beginning, you just stop paying attention to race. And yet there we are in the third episode being told that race is actually fundamental to the plot and is actually part of this, you know, reimagined 18th century world. And I don't know about you, Zoe, but I found that shift from race being kind of irrelevant to suddenly race being kind of part of the politics of the show a bit difficult. Well, just to clarify, that was in the fourth episode. Oh, sorry, uh, Not the third, called The Duke and I. And yes, I found that jarring, absolutely. And it's something to do with genre not being what it's supposed to be. So we can enjoy race-blind casting in a fun, sexy period drama. But when that race-blind casting becomes highly politicized, which that plot twist in episode four makes it clear that it is, it's a very strange thing because you're being fed something that's patently kind of a romp and fluff, but that's also making an incredibly extreme political point. So what we find out in that fourth episode is that um, the reason there are so many black aristocrats Indeed, that there is a reason that we are supposed to not see the casting as a suspension of belief, but as a real part of the plot. The reason there are so many Black aristocrats is that King George married and, as they say, fell in love with, quote, one of us, as Lady Danbury says. And then, because of that, elevated um, people of colour to the highest possible positions. And critics 
who obviously love this kind of revisionism, if, you, if it can be taken as such, praised this as a specific critical history of race um, <laughs> packed onto a love story. So very quickly, we get outside of the realms of this is just a piece of fluff and we get into this is, a this is a political story and it doesn't even matter whether it's fact or fiction because its makers are actually suggesting something and they're suggesting there's a rightful restoration to these roles of you know, debutantes, kings, queens, dukes uh, that is going on in Bridgerton. And that in fact, the real history is one of a, of a much more uh, diverse Regency court. And the fake history is the one that our racist society has produced that suggests Regency England was pretty white. So I, I find that problematic on a bunch of levels. And I'm sure Tom, as a historian, you might find it a bit problematic, or maybe you just think it's, you know, who cares? It's just a romp. I think the idea that the kind of the true diversity of British history was whitewashed out in some sort of conspiratorial way is, is clearly quite farcical. Um, we now know that there were, of course, uh, a significant number of black people in 18th century Britain, and that's been you know, a subject that's increasingly been researched. And if you look at your Hogarth paintings, you can definitely spot them. Um, but they're not members of the aristocracy and they're not members of the, of the kind of inner circle of the court. And so this is all a bit, this is all a bit kind of skew if. I don't believe this idea that Queen Charlotte should be seen as a mixed race character. You know, there's been some quite spurious historical speculation about her kind of Portuguese and then Moorish ancestry um, that tries to sort of justify this move. Um, and I also think the way that race is actually dealt with in Bridgerton is really very superficial. After that conversation in episode four, I've been corrected, after that conversation, there is no then sign of lingering racism. Like, and maybe that's because, as you say, Charlotte now is head of the social system and so racism is no longer kind of allowed. Um, but our lead man, Hastings, has presumably grown up partly under the old order or part of a different order. And the fact that he encounters no friction on the basis of his race is very strange. I would also say that there's almost no good writing for the black characters. And um, one of his uh, closest friends is this boxer, um, kind of black boxer, which does reflect the fact that there were some very interesting black boxers in Britain at the end of the 18th century, but he's given hardly any dialogue. No, he's given hardly any development. So I feel in a way, you know, if it really wanted to do something with this race thing, it should actually try and think about in a more kind of exciting way what it is to live in a, in a time of racial transition and actually give some decent writing to the black characters. But um, apart from Lady Danbury, who is, who is wonderful. Um, in terms of what you were saying about suspension of disbelief, Zoe, do you think it makes a difference with colorblind casting, whether it's on television as opposed to when it's in the theater? Absolutely. In, in the theater, there's a sort of artifice that's built in. It's sort of obvious. You're, you're in a room watching something on a stage that is supposed to be reality, but clearly the, the gulf between what the stage is evoking and the stage, the realities of the stage is, is huge. And the audience kind of gets that. It's kind of instinctive. It's just obvious. Whereas I think the, the realism of a TV drama is, 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 is much stronger. I mean, as I think you said, Tom, TV is a seduction and you're seeing what makes it luscious is that you're seeing these, you're seeing streets, you're seeing locations, you're seeing houses, you're seeing interiors. You're, you're, you're being completely seduced by an imaginative world, which theater uh, can't do in the same way. Theater can, can capture the imagination through dialogue and, and drama and scenes, but it's, it's nowhere near as real seeming. So, you know, I, I've found it a little concerning that I think 
even if you're watching the trashiest of period dramas, whether you're watching Downton Abbey even, or Lark Rise to Candleford, you're still <laughs> picking up a sort of sense, you're absorbing a look of the past or a sense of the past. And I think what's, what's really changed is that of course, popular representations of the past have always uh, massaged the past to fit contemporary tastes and to some degree ideologies. Um, but it's it's been more a kind of, it's, it hasn't been quite as political. I think we've been left with a sort of misty ignorance. Now what we're getting is a very decisive weaponized tweak in, or, or, or change in how the past is presented and how the past looks. And when it's done in this opulent TV, okay, clearly it, it's it's not a kind of, it's not a, it's not social reality. It's not social realism, but it's still helping to put in place a feel of the past. And for people who don't perhaps know much history or they're very young and they're watching this, they're growing up on this fair, it will start to give a picture that they kind of just subconsciously absorb that the, that the past was this, you know, that it, there was 40% BAME members of, of the gentry in the, in the Regency period. So I think the same effect would not be you know, visible on the stage. I don't think anybody watching a play about Regency England would think, okay, well, this must this must be what it was like. I think, as you say, the, the artifice is just built in much more. Pick up on what you said about the look of the past. I do think there were bits of Bridgerton that were almost sort of hyper real in their colors. Um, and I you, know, I, you know, you think of your Austin dramas and obviously a lot of the people who are tuning in for this are your usual Jane Austen kind of devotees. You know, and it's all very muted and it's all very tasteful. This was so garish and so lurid um, and looked so expensive, I suppose. And it's, it's interesting what's happened to the look of the past and that this is less about authenticity and much more about kind of, you know, period drama values, i.e. we spent a lot of money on this, mm. um, even if we didn't get the costumes right because we wanted to make them far more garish and far more kind of, you know, tropical almost the colors um you know we want it to have some old houses in it even if we don't really care whether they're 18th century houses um as zoe knows i'm a massive nerd for for english country houses at the moment and i kept tutting through bridgerton being like well you know, that's a 19th century interior that's not really very regency um and if i wanted to be charitable to the show i would say that they know that they're taking massive liberties you know there is a way in which you know that they're, they're fully aware of the anachronisms that they're introducing um, you know, there's all the Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande soundtrack that's being played on string quartets. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real sense that this isn't period drama. And I think one of the big influences on this whole new way of trying to write history is something like The Favourite, you know, that amazing, mm. uh, well, I thought it was amazing, recent Oscar winning film that had all of the interiors and the costumes and looked lavish and expensive, but was also willing to have voguing in it. You know, it was willing to have deliberately anachronistic dance styles. And I do think there's something inventive going on at the moment about how we're trying to inject into the past these dissonant kind of 21st century, you know, elements. Um, but I agree with you, Zoe, that even if the filmmakers and the, the writers are aware of this kind of creative irony, I do worry that some of the public might not be. Um, and there is a fear that people don't realize that this is a confection. The problem, what we're seeing now is just revisionism everywhere in accordance with diversity values that are present to so the present values that espouse diversity in all of its forms are being retrofitted on the past. And yeah, okay, this is a, a fun thing. And, and it, knows it's, it's, it knows that it's being playful and it's, it's incredibly confected. But I do think that as part of a bigger phenomenon as part of a bigger um, landscape of the past being 
presented today, whether that be in academic history uh, to undergraduates or in museum exhibitions where staff are under huge pressure to over-represent minorities of all kinds, you know, I think this, this does become um, a little bit more sinister perhaps. And then or, I mean, maybe it's, again, sinister is too heavy handed, but as part of this general uh, trend, I think, it, I think it can be seen as a little bit worrying. I think there's also a little bit of dishonesty here because it wants to get brownie points for being woke without actually doing any of the work of looking at the injustices at the time. So, you know, fine, be a romp, but then don't say to have characters sort of nod to, to kind of the, as we said in episode four, nod to the fact that they were horribly um, repressed and then suddenly, you know, lifted up. Okay, that's interesting, but tell us more. Or in the case of women, the only group of people here who are sort of explicitly oppressed are actually not people of color as such, but they are just women of all, you know, whether they're white or, or black. And, but again, it's not really taken seriously. So instead you have this ludicrous thing of, of like, for instance, the lead character Daphne saying to her brother about which gentleman she should marry. He's pressuring her to get married. You, do you not respect my choices as a woman? <laughs> How shocking. Um, and it's just sort of like, oh my God, just leave it. You know, either do that or just don't, you know, there's something, I don't know. I found that kind of irritating. The other thing to say, of course, is don't you think, Tom, that there's actually, for all its attempts to be, and, and it's successful to be subversive, in the end, this is a deeply normative production where, you, as you yourself pointed out, we are being asked to root for the hot people. And guess who the hot people are? They are the thin people. So in case the world hadn't noticed, <laughs> you know, we get it. Beautiful people are beautiful regardless of their race. It's not a big deal that there are beautiful stars of a TV show who are black or brown or whatever it is. But what is a big deal, what the world hasn't come around to is the potential sexual, you know, almost sexual rights or the right to have feelings of a fat person. Um, and so that's the, that's where the buck stops. And so, you know, there's one, char one character in this program who's fat. Uh, just oh, that. From Dairy Girls. And, you know, how much more interesting would it have been if they made her the leading lady and not Daphne, who's just like, just willowy, you know, tiny, like breakable sort of woman of blonde hair. Whatever Daphne's, uh, sorry, whatever Penelope's romantic future is, it's clear that her path to being accepted as a sort of sexual uh, persona is seriously imperiled by the fact that she's larger. I think it's it's really interesting what you say, because there is a strange sort of snobbery that persists um, in Bridgerton. And it's partly, as you say, the snobbery of like cheering for the beautiful people rather than the kind of the, the plain redheads. Um, and that weirdly that correlates to money. You know, the Bridgerton family um, are the much more kind of polished, much more distinguished family. And they're the family we're rooting for, whereas the Featheringtons are the upstarts. You know, they are the parvenus and they're often dressed in these kind of gaudy, horrible frocks and they are meant to be kind of vulgar. And so in a way, the drama reproduces some of that snobbery about new money. I mean, that's actually coded into how the audience sympathizes with them. Um, the, I think your points about the kind of creative gap between the past and the present are, are spot on, Zoe. Um, and I think another interesting example of that is the way that it thinks about women's rights and how those have changed from the 18th um, through to the kind of 21st century audience. Um, it reminded me of this recent show that's on Channel 4 at the moment called The Great, which is about Catherine the Great. 
And again, it's very funny. It plays around with all of these cliches of what the 18th century might be, but it, it can only present the spectacle of women in the past as a joke. Like this is no longer a thing of politics. It's actually just played as grotesque farce, like the lack of freedom over your own body, the lack of knowledge about the mechanics of sex, um, the lack of ability to kind of you know, read freely or be taken seriously intellectually. Um, this is an incredibly dark vision of the past, but played for laughs. You know, there's, and, in, and both, you know, Bridgerton is a much glossier version of that. There is something odd about appealing to 21st century sensibilities to judge the poor kind of limited, benighted condition um, of these women in the past. And I suppose that brings me to just one last thing I'd like to say is that, you know, this is a, this is a very Americanized version of Britain. Uh, Shonda Rhimes knows her audience. Netflix is absolutely appealing to an American audience. Um, and so it's not that interested in the specificities of Regency England. Um, the, the novel that this is based on um, is a book called The Duke and I, indeed, uh, by Julia Quinn, who is primarily a romance writer, um, very successful romance writer. But this is a bodice ripper. And it doesn't really care about whether the age of the house is right, whether the costumes look right. What it wants is salacious, scandalous, you know, tons of nudity, tons of intrigue, um, but still weirdly defers to the idea of English heritage. So it's a, it feels like a sort of trashy um, American soap that still wants to have the kind of idea of opulence or the kind of classiness that comes from English locations. Um, did you find that Americanness grating, Zoe? Uh, yeah, I, f I find American takes on British culture and society and history like deeply and instantly annoying. Um, and I think there's also a further dishonesty here, which is like here we have this program purporting to, uh, you know, be one in the eye of, of, of old traditional um, racially homogenous depictions but then what it goes and does is just reveals its fixation with the aristocracy and it's it's sort of love of hierarchy uh, and so I find that sort of an interesting tension I mean maybe dishonest is too harsh but it's the, the Americans for all that they want to be woke they just can't resist um, their attraction to to the kind of incredibly stratified society of, of the English past and I think in the, for me the dialogue was just so clunking and to, that was just a sort of American take on how English people talk to each other and clearly well, they consulted with some English people I know da David Olusuga the historian he was a historical consultant but they must have consulted no people. yes David Olusuga was a historical consultant I'm afraid Gosh. so Gosh. yeah Although, yeah, so so you can take it up with him about the difference between a 19th and an 18th <laughs> century interior. Um, but I do, I do think it was obvious, and I, I think that it, Americans just can't help in inflicting their romanticized view of English people as sort of, I don't know what, having these repressed but sexy lives and, and being sort of a, just all of them are so rich and they have these amazing lives. I, I think I, it's just like when you look at how Americans go for Downton Abbey, I mean, that's yeah. their sort of heroine. They love that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this was, I think this was a way more beautified picture of the Regency past and probably an English uh, maker would do, I think, although maybe it's a, maybe it's sort of a corollary to Downton Abbey, although Downton Abbey was very interested in servants. I was just I have... gonna say, there's no life below stairs in Bridgerton is no. the other thing that's interesting. It's more like a kind of glossy Tatler magazine of like yeah. 
the autant, you know, the the the, the in crowd, the beau monde getting together yeah. and mixing, but you get very little sense of the view from the outside or the right. You know, the and I think that reflects the fact that in Britain, perhaps class is much more of a concern in the matrix of intersectional oppressions, perhaps. So it may be a playful drama that was looking at a, a sort of older period might focus more on, on, on class. Maybe they would cast people who had uh, working class accents in high roles. I mean, it's interesting in The Crown, the casting of Olivia Coleman as the queen. Obviously she, she does the accent as she's supposed to, but Olivia Coleman is also kind of brilliant at doing, you know, she, she herself is hardly an aristocrat. She's brilliant at doing more working class accents and stuff. And, uh, but I think, you know, the Americans just don't really see class as that interesting of, a, of an intersection. So instead they focus on race. And I think there's just something, there is something a bit airless about the twin, the, the, the twinning of race and bodice ripping here. It doesn't, it just doesn't sit right with me. Well, in a celebration of diverse bodies, I mean, I have to say, he is amazing looking, uh, Reggie Champagne. The Duke is the but it almost, the Duke is, the Duke is mesmerizing. Yeah. But in a way that almost interrupts the story and like, you know, all of this kind of gratuitous sex, actually, at key moments in the drama, um, makes it farcical. Like it just adds to the absurdity of the whole spectacle. Um, but I think that blind spot about class, Zoe, I think you're, I think, I think you're definitely right there. Um, it feels a kind of very closed, very sort of superficial, shiny little world um, where there's no real sense of the bigger political nation. And it's quite different. I suppose the person who invented Regency romance in the 1930s was a British female writer called Georgette Heyer. And Georgette Heyer did loads, loads of like very, very dense research for the look, for the feel, for the costumes, um, but with these kind of romance narratives. And I suppose this has abandoned all of the kind of question of authenticity and accuracy. It's kept a little bit of the romance narrative, but with sort of 21st century sexual mores in the mix as well. I did find bits of it kind of a bit gratuitous. And I could imagine if you were watching this with your family, expecting that you're going to be watching Mansfield Park or something, you were going to get a horrible shock. Well, unfortunately, I made the mistake of watching some episodes with my parents. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was just, it, it wasn't, it just, you just don't want to do it. I don't. I don't advise it, as you say, Tom. Um, hmm. It was just interesting because you'd presume in the 65 million households that downloaded it, there will have been a fair amount of intergenerational viewing, but maybe, maybe not. I just have another, just a detailed question. Tom, does Bridgerton take place in Bath or in London? Mm. It's, it's, it's London. I mean, they did a little bit of filming in Bath, but overwhelmingly it's done in Shepparton Studios and then a whole bunch of houses that I think were picked for their availability rather than their appropriateness or because they looked grand. Um, but there's only a very few sequences that take place in Bath, usually all kind of exterior shots. Yes, exactly. That's why I thought it was so bizarre because to anyone who knows England, those houses are, that the, the, those sort of sweeping Georgian exteriors are, are Bath. But then again, it feels like a like an American composite that somebody sort exactly. of flipped through a kind of glossy magazine of what you expect English period drama exactly. to be and kind of fitted it together. Exactly. Um, but I do, just as a closing point, I do think that idea of the, the past is built out of preconceived cliches is becoming more and more powerful. And I think that while you can play around with the elements in an inventive way, and I do think there have been dramas, even The Great is doing something kind of inventive, because at least it's about Russia in the 18th century. This just serves up all of the old cliches, 
but with this bizarre layering of 21st century sort of identity politics over the top. Um, but it's not using the past, you know, it doesn't change your sensibilities to the past because the past is not allowed to be different. The past is just some sort of shiny um, screen yes. on which all of your own values are projected and reflected back. So, it, you know, it's a kind of wasted opportunity. It didn't feel like there was time travel going on with Bridgerton. It was just a sort of fantasy of 21st century wish fulfillment. Yes. I think that's a very interesting, good point and good one to end on. So, Tom, why the hype? Um, the Apart from all the areas that we've suggested, which I do think are to do with its shallowness and its glossiness and its essentially sort of Moorishness, because um, I did devour it, I would say, probably in about a week and a half. Um, I think the timing of release was also not an accident. You know, this came out in December. It came out at a time when people weren't having Christmas. Um, a lot of people were trapped indoors. And I think the escapism of it, you know, and this is what we've held up as a criticism, that it doesn't deal with difficult issues and it doesn't really politically have anything to say. But in a way, after a terrible year, I think people wanted something that felt like a ride in a barouche um, that just made them dream of having a bonnet on and doing a whiz around a square in Bath. Um, Zoe, why the hype? Okay, the hype, sex, plus mm -hmm. a little frisson, of watching diversity. That for me, I think I think that casting decision, which I think all the actors were excellent, but I yeah. think the casting decision, plus that little plot twist, plus the sex, plus the fashion, equaled almost what people might see as a wholesome, politically progressive binge on candy. And what more could you want than a politically progressive, sort of naughty late night candy binge? Uh, that that was quite... There's one more ingredient I'll throw in, Zoe. Julie Andrews. Like, I watched, I think, all the episodes because I was constantly waiting for Julie Andrews to appear. Uh, and obviously, I realised I was not going to see her. But it's just that kind of sheen of class that Bridgerton, for all of its tawdriness, has been able to kind of incorporate. That makes That's you think, right. You know, maybe there's something more going on. Well, exactly. When, when Julie's on board, um, <laughs> it's impossible to just completely like throw something out. I mean, there's there's got to be levels of quality there that may not be visible to the naked eye, but at least, <laughs> at least there's something there. Um, so join us next time for a discussion of the US inauguration of Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs>